1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. London's iconic architecture tested to the brink of destruction by Storm Eunice. In South Kilburn, a beautiful estate regeneration has fallen short for local residents. A large scale psychedelic dream machine designed by Assemble to tour UK cities, and residents of South London's Central Hill Estate calling on architects to abide their climate pledges. My name's Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week is Fran Williams. Fran is deputy architecture editor at the AJ. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me Merlin.
1: Storm Eunice swept across the country last week, wreaking havoc on transport, leaving hundreds of thousands without power and causing immense damage to infrastructure. This is a story that's been covered across the national media, including in the AJ. On Friday afternoon, the architecture Twitter sphere was a frenzy of activity as Eunice tested what London is truly made of. Uh, Richard Rogers O2 Arena, which is made of PTFE coated glass fibre fabric, was no match for the 69 mile per hour winds as huge sections were ripped off the 22-year-old marquee-like structure leaving the building's skeleton exposed. Originally built as a temporary attraction for the millennium celebrations and inspired by the 1951 Festival of Britain the dome's super cheap structure cost just £43 million to construct. Around 1,000 people were evacuated from the concert venue which was renamed the O2 Arena back in 2005. Photographs seem to show six panels have been shredded but the true the extent of the damage to the building is unknown. Elsewhere, Herzog de Meuron's 2003 Sterling Prize winning Laban Centre in Deptford was also badly damaged, with numerous strips of its polycarbonate facade coming loose. Uh, the 19 year old dance centre, which cost £14.4 million to build, houses 13 studios on its campus on the banks of the Thames in Deptford. Uh, Friday's winds ripped strips of the iridescent outer facade from Laban's inner concrete structure. Meanwhile, Cressingham Gardens, a housing estate in South London we have covered numerous times on the London, also suffered badly in the storm. Several roofs were lifted and social media was awash with some pretty shocking photos of the zinc roofs, which have peeled off the buildings, almost resembling opened sardine tins. Uh, the latest damage the landmark post-war architectural gem follows years of campaigning against redevelopment which have also seen residents calling on the council to replace the tired roofs uh, for more than a decade so Fran, Storm Eunice has reaped havoc across the capital but also placed some of its most iconic buildings at risk, uh, in Cressingham Gardens for example, uh, the poor state of the roofs reminds us that the estate itself has suffered as a result of being earmarked for wider redevelopment for more than a decade, um, could storm damage across London be used and perhaps in instances like Cressingham Gardens, for example, to potentially push through contentious demolition and redevelopment plans.
0: So what the Brixton Buzz is reporting, after speaking to several residents who are obviously really angry at Lambeth's inability to maintain their homes, despite past promises, is that many suspect this to be part of Lambeth's plan to intentionally run down Cressingham Gardens so that they can push through their wildly unpopular plans to flatten the entire estate and replace it with luxury flats. This sounds like a conspiracy, but in September 2012, Lambeth apparently sent out a document to residents acknowledging that their roofs needed replacing. That was over 10 years ago, and no action has obviously been taken since. And Lambeth have used the argument of design failings for years as their main justification for its planned demolition. So there is definitely a wider issue of a lack of maintenance and a kind of managed decline that happens a lot with housing that is in much of demolition.
1: That's no, absolutely fascinating. I mean, another another building, um, perhaps a building that was somewhat contentious in its genesis, but is, is quite well loved now is obviously the O2 Arena. You know, this was all over the news uh, last Friday, helicopter shots and uh, aerial images showing it being ripped apart. Um it's nearing the end of its 25-year lifetime. That's how long it was designed to, to be standing. Um, it was built for the turn of the millennium. It was intended to stay up until 2025. Um, what do you think might happen uh, to the Millennium Dome now? Will it be repaired? Um, or is this, um, perhaps this could be a reason to demolish it or build something else on on that riverside site?
0: So it's essentially a giant marquee-style building with a canopy that was originally meant to be made of PVC-coated polyester fabric. And these plans were dropped after a protest by Greenpeace and a more durable, more expensive and more weather resistant PTFE coated glass fibre fabric panels was selected instead. Um, And the Minister for Science, Energy and Industry at the time claimed that the decision was to preserve the option of keeping the dome for longer than previously envisaged. But even in 2000, there were already reports of the glass fibre roof having at least 12 rips and tears so I don't think the arena is actually any stranger to maintenance. I'm sure there's been plenty of rips over the last two decades, but because the damage was way more extreme this time, it did come to the forefront of mainstream media. But it was actually reported a couple of days ago that the I think the O2 arena will reopen this Friday after some quick repair work. I don't know what that means, um, as they don't want to reschedule a lot of their gigs So I think, sadly, this highlights um, how it's an example of basically showing what is given priority in today's society. Um, This structure will be repaired as what it represents the UK is kind of prestige, legacy, and it's a big source of cultural economy. Um, And I think as well, after the historic failure of what the Millennium Dome itself represented back in 2000, with the OT arena being a more obvious vestige of its success, it will be retained for sure. Um, whereas less is um, directly gained back from it in terms of the economy from fixing a basic roof on housing schemes like Crassium Gardens. I will be interested to see what, it is, what is planned for it post-2025. I reckon it will be kept, particularly in light of um, Richard Rogers' legacy.
1: So one of the things that was quite interesting uh, about last Friday during the storm um I mean th- we know there sadly there are f- few events that really bring architecture so squarely into uh, the collective public consciousness um, but you know back then during the storm there was probably nothing else that could tear people's eyes away from Twitter or even just their windows watching the sort of architecture fabric of the city being torn apart um, now the environmental impact of buildings has become increasingly um, you know, entered this conversation amongst architects in recent years um, do you think these recent events and Storm Eunice, uh, which undoubtedly were in some ways uh, caused by climate crisis, uh, could help widen this debate uh, in the wider public? Could it help people get a bit more aware about the climate impact uh, of what's going on?
0: There's lots of ways that this has contributed to the debate. Firstly, I think it would perhaps allow the industry and residents of our cities to really reassess the quality of build. How our buildings are built and how they are maintained, and how our building regulations come into play, it's the same as designing for kind of seismic locations or having to elevate homes in high-risk floodplains. Our buildings are not really made to withstand the future, the climate of the future, particularly when it comes to flooding and overheating. And as well as make, designing to mitigate climate change, architects have to design places which will be habitable and humane in increasingly extreme climate events like the one we've just had. But the real problem is that there are homes that are far too hot in a heat wave, something that the Environmental Audit Committee in Parliament has been very concerned about. And of course, there are thousands of homes still being built on floodplains every year, let alone areas that are due to become floodplains. So that is a question for local authorities about how to effectively plan, but also for architects in terms of how to design buildings which are flexible and resilient England has had very mild weather for a long time and that's why our railways for example have a huge meltdown whenever it's super windy or it snows and our buildings are like railways, they're not adaptable enough because they have not needed to be historically.
1: Thank you for supporting The Lundown by listening, subscribing and sharing this show. The Lundown is produced by Open City and the London Society. Open City is a charity best known for Open House Festival, but also for our tours, education programmes and events. The show, along with the festival and schools programme, are free. And that's because we believe everyone should have access to the tools and resources to learn about and experience our built environment. Um, To keep this show free for everyone, we rely on those of you who can afford it to donate the equivalent of one coffee per Per month uh, if this is you please go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flat white to donate and help keep these conversations accessible inclusive and honest and i'd like to give a huge thank you to nick perry and natalia chibivariva uh, for signing up to support us this week thank you for the coffee it's delicious Unity Place, a housing estate in the northeast London borough of Brent, has undergone a transformation from leaky prefab concrete buildings to mystique brick-clad socially rented housing. This was reported by previous Lundown guest and architecture critic Ollie Rainwright in The Guardian. Uh, it was also uh, the focus of a building study by Laura Mark in last month's AJ housing special issue. Brent Council secured £111 million from the London Mayor to deliver genuinely affordable housing in the borough. It's the poorest in West London, and £30 million of this funding was dedicated to this project. Alison Brooks and Field & Clegg Bradley Studios, the architects behind the Stirling Prize-winning Accordia housing project in Cambridge, along with Gort Scott, were commissioned by Brent to replace the damp, wrought council flats. Mimicking the grand and prestigious mansion blocks of nearby Maida Vale, Unity Place now accommodates 234 new homes, all of which are for social rent, contributing to the 1,626 social rented units the council has promised to deliver. The project is the latest chapter of the wider South Kilburn Regeneration Programme, which has had a fraught history of construction flaws, including the £18.5 million repair bill for leaky buildings purchased by the council's housing company for £17.1 million back in 2009. In his article, Wainwright applauds the development's new streetscape and oatmeal facades, but highlights the lack of consideration given to the residents themselves, noting that the buildings appear to have aesthetics as their primary concern, with the internal configuration of flats, seemingly an afterthought. Um, so, Fran, what do you make of Unity Place? Um, I mean, it seems at first glance like a, a real success story, um, but who's really winning here?
0: Firstly, what Ollie points out at the start of his piece is that Alison Brooks, who has worked on the estate for nearly 12 years and has built two other projects there, one of which was nominated for the 2017 Mies Vendero Award, said that the first task was to restore the street network. The previous 1960s blocks there were moated, so they were kind of set back on a podium of car parking that effectively blocked access through the streets. Um, And what the master planning architects have done here, who are Field and Clegg Bradley in this case, have created a new kind of pedestrian route running through the site where they've kind of set up these avenues of cherry trees, apparently to frame a playground um, and forming a key vista, that terminates at the the Gothic revival façade of St. Augustine's Church, making the site overall much, much more accessible. And what it sounds like is that the attention has been directed to creating a good streetscape and one that vastly improves on what was there before, but perhaps maybe compromising on the quality of the flats. So I'm a bit torn about this because I think good landscape design and good external aesthetics are actually immensely important if we're going to be building new, as we want any new buildings built now to last a really long time, and they're more likely to attract kind of um, economy driven into maintenance. Therefore, aesthetics and quality builds are essential for this. And to be honest, this housing, although Ollie points out the issues in his piece, seems a lot better than most that is being built at the moment. I think we also owe it to our city to create good streetscapes, especially if we want our residents to feel safer and happier when walking outside and around their estates, as that was a key issue when it came to the downfall of a lot of our post-war housing estates, as obviously they prioritised the car over the pedestrian and with density pushed to their centres made them feel quite unsafe. However, as architects, we also do have a duty of care to create good quality housing internally as well. And from the sounds of it, and what Ollie says in his article is that It's as if the flats have been squeezed into a predetermined envelope rather than the blocks designed around the best internal configuration. But they would have been designed to London housing standards, so this points to an issue with our standards too. Um, Who is winning here? Um, Obviously, probably the borough. It's basically um, aesthetics washing in a way. I'm not really sure how else to put it. The council have painted over mistakes of the past with something beautiful and bricky, forgetting that residents actually have to live there. But then again, they've made a piece of urban fabric that is seemingly successful, so that is to be commended in a lot of ways. But with the flats aside, and what Ollie discusses towards the end of his piece in The Guardian, is that there sounds like there is a wider issue of a history of non-communication between Brent Council and its tenants. And due to a lot of new and ongoing regeneration in the area, there is a lack of community feel there now, unfortunately. And what Ollie and Laura Mark both touch on in their pieces uh, is that there are much wider conversations to be had. And perhaps parallels with what we'll touch on later on in the podcast and discussion over Central Hill Estate is that um, South Kilburn Estate, um, kind of a reclab and refurb option, definitely wasn't part of Brent's agenda, nor was the climate emergency at the forefront of their minds.
1: So obviously you're you're an architecture editor at the AJ, and I think looking at trends in architectural publishing, I mean, traditionally this architectural criticism often focused on like high architecture, big money projects, you know, things like cultural landmarks and commercial developments. Um, and is, do you think, is there something significant fa- about the fact that the architecture critic of The Guardian, but also lots of architecture critics generally, are now um, cleverly sort of scrutinising these environmental and social impacts of, of developments rather than just focusing on the aesthetics? I mean, is, is this part of a bigger trend? Is this, what does this reflect?
0: I think given that there's a housing and environmental crisis going on at the moment, I don't think we should be really seeing this as significant, that he's reporting on the development in this way, as it should definitely be the norm now. I think what is interesting about this article is that he's used development as a platform to open a wider discussion on the role of councils and social housing, issues with lack of communication with their residents, the failure of design and build to create quality buildings – and a lack of enthusiasm towards maintaining and fixing our existing building stock over building new. I think, as an architectural critic, we should be constantly using developments like these to start conversations about the wider topics. As architectural journalism is about setting a precedent for our industry, whether it's what we should be doing or not doing. And in the case of Unity Place um, and many more other developments, there's many many issues in play with why these schemes are successful in some ways and unsuccessful in others. And I think Unity Place is a great case study for showcasing these. We're living in a housing and climate crisis and so housing developments and their environmental credentials will, it should be, incredibly important topic at the forefront of discussion, way more than cultural landmarks or big money projects that you mentioned. And the fact that Oli is just dis- is discussing this project is just opening the discussion wider into what we expect from our councils and local governments it's good in terms of good quality social housing.
1: Assemble has unveiled their audio-visual installation that will form part of this year's UK-wide Unboxed 2022 Festival. This is a story that's been reported in The Guardian. Originally dubbed the Festival of Brexit and then called the Festival of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, the £120 million mega event has been inspired by the 1851 Great Exhibition and the 1951 Festival of Britain, though in this case it will be spread across the country rather than focusing on a single venue assembles competition winning immersive piece uh, based on a device built in the 1950s will deliver a collective hallucinatory experience for visitors to enjoy with their eyes closed conceived by jennifer crook uh, she was producer of the london 2012 festival uh, which ran alongside the olympics uh, the experience uses strobe lighting to stimulate kaleidoscopic illusions in people's minds Uh, the large-scale artwork was inspired by a contraption made more than six 60 years ago by Brian Jisson uh, the avant-garde artist and good friend of the beat poet William Burroughs um, it basically involves a cylindrical piece of paper punched with holes um, it's placed on a record player and spun with a light source inside Jisson um, described his dream machine as quote the first art object to be seen with the eyes closed uh, and he optimistically hoped that it would replace the TV as people swap the passive consumption of media for entertainment of their own imaginations crook's hallucinatory dream machine is one of 10 free installations taking place across the country uh, in the 120 million pound event um which was formerly coined festival of britain proposed uh, originally by former prime minister Theresa May. Um, The four metre tall timber framed structure designed by Assemble has been described as a secular temple. Visitors will be invited to sit around the 11 metre diameter circle uh, in the centre of which perches a stroboscope uh, and will enjoy a soundscape composed by Mercury Prize nominated musician John Hopkins. Uh, Dream Machine will open in London in May before touring around the rest of the country. Um, So uh, Fran... Apparently, it seems so far the test audience have responded very positively to the installation. Um, some even went so far as to say the experience was euphoric, uh, even life-changing. Um, you know, as, as somebody, as an architecture critic and someone who studied architecture, what do you make of the dream machine as a, a concept and piece of architectural design?
0: To be honest, I think overall this project is incredibly indulgent. But as a piece of architectural and scientific research, it's interesting it's inviting a conversation around the impact of space on mental health. Um, and for example, when I was doing my master's, I wrote an essay on the relationship between prison architecture and sensory deprivation. I suppose it's like the opposite. It's sensory overload in a way. But is it a piece of architecture is my question. It seems more like, yeah, it seems more like a, a piece of science research or a piece of interactive art. But I'm trying to be open minded um, but there is a certain irony to this. As a commission, for starters, Assemble are known for their variety of community-focused schemes. Um, for example, they were awarded the two thousand and fifteen Turner Prize for their work regenerating the Granby Four Streets area of Liverpool and co-creating the Granby Workshop social enterprise. And a lot of their other projects um, have been, although they've been mostly kind of playful. At the core is that there is definitely a community-focused approach. So this is quite an unusual commission for them. And I don't know much about the machine and I'm kind of struggling to envisage what it would be like. But I think the idea from what I've read is that visitors to the machine will enter a room and sit in a circle before closing their eyes. Um, And instead will have kind of tried to design an environment that is optimal for inducing transcendental experiences. But one where the technology is hidden and there's potential for inducing mind bending hallucinatory states I hope there's a bit of humour behind this. Um, And what does it say about the industry in the 21st century? In some ways, I reckon it's nothing, as it's essentially a piece of interactive art. But in other ways, I think it's a commentary on how important space and how we design spaces is on impacting people's moods and mental health. And we often forget to design like that, especially with the rise of BIM and constantly designing in kind of 3D model form, Um, we do forget that we are actually designing spaces that are to be used and do have an impact, whether it's physical or mental, and mostly on a daily basis. So it's really important that architects remember that. Um, And I also think there is definitely a statement on the impact that the pandemic has had and how lonely it was for a lot of people. Um, And this machine hopes to provide collective, and they say personal, experiences um, and it hopes to uh, stimulate kind of public interest in what consciousness is and how perception works.
1: So, I mean, interestingly, this this forms part of the uh, Unboxed 2022 festival. I mean, that was originally dubbed the Festival of Brexit. Um, th- this celebration is intended to celebrate and unify the country after the referendum. Um I mean, Brexit itself has been pretty divisive. I mean, it's provided a dream for some and a nightmare uh, for others. Uh, is a hallucinatory experience really what the average person needs right now uh, as we exit the pandemic in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis? Um, does a, an artwork like this perhaps risk sort of naively being used for propaganda purposes?
0: In BD's article, they quoted Unboxed Chief Creative Officer Martin Green as saying... In an age where we demand everything is explicit, there has to be room for the indescribable. And I find that quote really funny because I'm not sure that indescribable is what anyone is looking for. Escapism, perhaps, yes, but indescribable, definitely not. Um, But in all seriousness, the Turner Prize winning collective Assemble was one of 30 teams shortlisted for this competition for two innovative concepts for the festival of Brexit, which, yeah, obviously is now known as Unboxed. And as part of the shortlisting, each team, including Assemble, was given £100,000 to develop their concepts. And that is a huge amount of money for something that seems a little bit futile, and that could be definitely redirected into the economy elsewhere, especially after a pandemic. And yes, it is ironic that it is about dreaming, especially when we are living through the consequences of the impact of Brexit on the UK economy, such as tighter import controls and certainty around people's living standards. But maybe that's the point, we hallucinate until we forget.
1: Residents of Crystal Palace's Central Hill Estate have appealed to architects to stick to their climate pledges and reject Lambeth Council's proposition to demolish and rebuild their homes. Uh, The residents are the focus of a landmark feature by former London guest Will Ng in the AJ, which includes a cover image showing two neighbours on the front of the prestigious Architecture Industry magazine. Uh, Central Hill was completed in 1974 by a team at Lambeth Council's planning office, uh, which is overseen by renowned modernist Ted Hollenby, and included pioneering architect Rosemary Sternster. Um, The much-loved estate is nestled in South London near Crystal Palace and offers sweeping views across the city. Lambeth Council signalled its intention to redevelop the 6.8 hectare site back in 2012 and formally approved construction of hundreds of new better homes in 2017. However, more than a decade on, a master plan for the estate has yet to emerge. Central Hill focuses in Open City's South London pocket-printed tour and regular cycle tour, and it's also been championed by the acclaimed architect Kate mackintosh who's set to deliver a landmark lecture at earth in dalston organized by open city on the 7th of april tickets available on our website now lambeth is finally set to pick an architect to design 1,200 new homes on the central hill site and submit a planning application that would see all 450 existing homes demolished three practices are shortlisted for the job uh, they are hawkins brown prp and bptw Central Hill residents are urging the architects to challenge the council on demolition. They argue that taking on the job will mean contradicting their architects declared pledges um, and would be therefore complicit In a scheme that compounds both the climate emergency and London's affordable housing crisis. In addition, campaigners argue that very little has been done to investigate the possibility of retrofit and infill projects, something the council denies, and that problems with the estate, including damp, cold, and mould, are caused by a lack of maintenance and neglect, rather than flaws with the estate's design and fabric. Residents feel betrayed by the decision to demolish Uh, Cliff Grant, a leaseholder who's been offered a new flat on the redeveloped estate, um, but only on a shared ownership basis, said, quote, I'm quite angry at the way they treat people. It's absolutely awful, he says. Goes on. "Uh, The experience has caused me to have a stroke uh, and it's caused a lot of ill health in people. Um, So, Fran, what's this all about? What is the significance of Central Hill and why do residents feel so strongly about protecting it?
0: As you mentioned, Central Hill at the moment has about 450 homes and Lambeth Council want to demolish this estate so they can build an extra 400, many for private sale, so that it can apparently finance the construction of new social housing. And obviously to do this, they need its current residents to move out and be rehoused elsewhere, breaking up the community that exists. It's not really a news story. We've sadly seen it lots of times before, across London's post-war housing estates and some could say it's another example of social cleansing of London council estates but the significance with this estate and what Will talks about in his story is that the residents are making the argument that whichever architect wins the job of redeveloping the site will be contradicting their architects declared pledges and would be complicit in a scheme that compounds both the climate emergency and London's affordable housing crisis. So Lambeth Council argued that the homes suffer from damp and that the design of the estate encourages crime. It's the same story as many post-war estates that have been knocked down after years of poor maintenance, such as the Haygate estate in Elephant Castle, for example. The residents, on the other hand, say that the crime rate is less than average and that problems with the buildings are the lack of maintenance by the council. The campaign group Architects for Social Housing have been working with the residents to develop an alternative regeneration plan for the estate and urge architects to challenge the council on demolition. I haven't actually been to Central Hill, but when my colleague Will recently went to visit, he met many of the residents there um, and has obviously written a really great piece exploring the reasons why the residents feel betrayed by the council and are urging architects to reject Lambeth's project to rebuild the estate. Now, Central Hill, Save Central Hill Community, a group of residents and housing campaigners, have said that demolition is obviously incompatible with climate commitments made by both the council and architects, in line with the AJs' own retrofit campaign. And it's also ironic because in 2019, Lambeth became the first London borough to declare a climate emergency and vowed to slash their carbon emissions. Um, and then, obviously. At the same time, all of the architects on the shortlist to rede- redevelop the site, join Architects Claire and promise to evaluate their work against his pledges.
1: And just thinking of this as a, as a piece of architectural publishing, I mean, it's quite an intimate portrayal of the struggle of a community against demolition. And in this piece, the stories of the residents are centred. Um, and that's kind of different because normally... Uh, it would be the, the client or the architects that you're hearing more from in a piece like this. So, um, and it's certainly, I, I've having worked in architecture publishing myself for about 10 years, I don't really remember a similar approach. Yeah, you know, I don't remember seeing something like this being published before. Is this quite an unusual piece uh, for AJ and also for the magazine itself to feature two social residents, uh, social housing residents on its cover?
0: So yeah, the, as you said, um, the AJ is out in print tomorrow and we do feature... Um, tomorrow being Thursday, and we do feature quite a unique and what I think is a very strong cover that shows two of the residents, Cliff and Clive, in front of their estate with the headline "One Estate's Battle for Retrofit." Unusual for us, as we normally prioritize the typical architectural photography that is devoid of people. Um, something that most architecture publishing and and me, for example, are very guilty of doing. I I do love a straight-on, non-angular shot for example. But the great thing about this photo is that it gives a human side to the article. And for example, one of the key issues with demolition of an estate like Central Hill is the massive loss of community that it will cause. Um, but I don't think this cover should be seen as an unusual angle for us or for architectural publishing going forward. What it is showing is that we are taking a stand and should be taking a stand and advocating for architects to think about the communities that they are working with. For me, architecture publishing is about setting a precedent for our industry. And by this cover, we are showing that it is important to see the human side of the impacts of our industry. It is also important if we want to see architecture become more diverse and accessible. So here's to many more covers featuring people and a wider selection of people.
1: Fran, it's been an amazing pleasure to feature you on the Lundown. Uh, perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit about how uh, where they can keep up to speed on all the exciting things you're writing on and write, writing about.
0: So I would check out the AJ website, which is at architectsjournal.co.uk. And I'm on Twitter as Fran Wills. And that's with a Z at the end and Merlin I have a question for you what's coming up at Open City that people might be interested
1: in? Oh fantastic this is my favourite bit, love to to share the inside line of what's going on at Open City so uh, the programme for Open House London Festival is now open for proposals so if you've got a building, a housing estate, a garden, an event or a flat that you'd like to include in the festival uh, application details are all available on our website. Uh, Meanwhile we've just launched bookings for the first Baylight Fellowship residential masterclass uh, visiting world class housing including accordia marmalade lane and span estates in cambridge and the ride in hatfield Uh, catering and overnight accommodation at 6a's cowan court in cambridge is included in the ticket price Uh, and finally uh, tickets are selling like hotcakes uh, to Open City's 2022 keynote lecture uh, that will be given by the acclaimed Scottish architect Kate McIntosh. Edinburgh-born McIntosh is best known for her 1960s social housing projects and her tireless work as a campaigner uh, for housing. Um, tickets for this can be found on our website. You've been listening to The London, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to the Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. OpenCity receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an OpenCity friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city.